The liturgy is in fact the first teacher of catechism. Being more is not just what we get to define, it's how God calls us to himself. He is the more. To do a little mystagogical catechesis. Mystagogical catechesis. Huh? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand. <laughs> is that a little too hot? Sorry. Be more. That makes sense. Be more. Yes. This is Mysticat, your podcast about mystagogical catechesis. I'm Father Andrew Strobel. And I am Curtis Ketty. We are going <laughs> to take a little road trip. Oh, road trip. It's Easter, so he is risen. He is truly risen. Alleluia. <laughs> we may or may not be recording this in Lent, so it feels pretty scandalous that we just said that. Yeah, I just had to mute you when you said alleluia, but that's okay. Wait, did I just say it? <laughs> hey, here's an interesting question. Why is alleluia so important that we we refrain, we fast from saying it during Lent? Uh, I don't know why. Why don't we say hallelujah? No, hey, don't, don't, don't make it seem like every time I ask a question, I already have the answer. <laughs> I can ask a question. I can ask a question without being the sort of snarky guy with the answer waiting oh, in are, my back pocket. Your snarky answer guy. I mean, it's fun. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. Yeah, please I'll, do. See, I know you have the answer. <laughs> No, it's just, again, it's one of those words. It's one of those words where we say it all the time as Catholics yeah. and yet don't often know what it means. It's like the word glory. Um, so the word alleluia, it's like, what does the word alleluia actually mean? Well, alleluia is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew hallelujah. That's why they sound so similar, but they're actually two different languages. But it comes from hallelujah, hallel, which is thanksgiving. And Yah, which is the holy name of God, thanksgiving to God. And it is was always sung or proclaimed in uh, the context of victory, mm. usually a uh, military victory. You know, yeah. thanks be to God for the victory. And so we refrain from um, saying it, singing it in the season of Lent because we're anticipating the victory. But the battle, the spiritual struggle we are still very much a part of in Lent. We're still very much part of it in Easter, but to like really reflect the fact that the victory has now taken now, place, we sing it with that Easter joy. I've Hallelujah. heard scripture scholars talk about that that was the song sung at the Last Supper before they went to the Mount of Olives. Is That's that right? right. A Hallel, a Hallel Psalm. There's yeah, several Hallel Hallel. Psalms of Thanksgiving. Yeah. And of course, what does Eucharist mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving. It means That's Thanksgiving. Right. That's right. So really, the entire Mass, the Eucharist, is one big hallelujah. But seriously, road trip. Road trip, yes. And I think that something that you know made me think about this road trip that we're about to go on was just the idea of our the name of our podcast, Mystagogical Catechesis. And we talked about it in the first episode, Mystagogy, going deeper into the mystery of who Christ is and how he calls us. And of course, I'm more familiar with the term mystagogy because of the RCIA or the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults. Actually, interesting, the RCIA, that acronym is going to change in the next couple of years because they're revising, they're, they're revising the translation of that um, whole rite. And so it's going to be called the Order of Christian Initiation of Adults. So it'll be the OCIA. Which makes sense because there's many rites within it. That's right. 
Uh, anyways, so the RCIA is four stages, and the official names of the four stages are inquiry, catechumenate, the stage of purification and enlightenment, and then mystagogy. And to simplify that, I've changed the names of those for the people who are coming in so they don't think they're part of a, like some weird obscure cult. And I say, okay, the first stage is encountering Christ, and then we follow Christ, and then we are changed by Christ, and then we are sent by Christ. So encounter, follow, change, and sent. And this four-stage process in the RCA is actually the whole Christian life. It is the the whole cycle that we continually go through. It's actually in the liturgy itself, the four stages, and it's in the liturgical year, in fact, the four stages. So these four stages are like absolutely intrinsic, and we get it from how Jesus formed his disciples, and now I'm getting to my point. Before you get to your point, because we're getting ready for our road trip, we're not there yet. Um, you know, not only is it really important to know that people who are becoming Christian who are seeking baptism are going through these stages, but the church actually speaks about these stages, right, in terms of the model for all adult faith formation, That's all right. catechesis, right? That's right. And evangelization. So it's really like, <clears throat> here's where I'm always becoming distrustful because the evangelization drive in the church is always necessary. The mission of the church is evangelization. That is what we have to do in the world. But there's so much discussion about evangelization among people who are really trying to do good work. But whenever they omit a discussion about the RCIA, my hair's started to have like a spidey sense tingle to them on the back of my neck because I'm like, wait a second. How do you understand coming to Christ apart from these four stages? This is important, not just for people who have go, gone through the process or are thinking about it or know someone who's been in RCA, but this is for all of us. No, the RCIA, as dry as that title sounds, is a journey with Christ and it is modeled after how Jesus formed his first disciples. It is so essential and studying the RCIA is just a way of studying the Gospels and how Jesus formed his disciples. And it's studying our own life. So within the RCIA, we see a ritualized form of the whole Christian experience, mm -hmm. Christian life. And it can be sometimes a trap to get stuck in one of the stages and not sure. see that it is it must necessarily progress. Like you just want to stay following Christ. Yeah. But there's you, you, you cannot follow him without being changed. And you cannot yeah, be changed not, without being sent. It's all directed. And it's not just like, you know, a course you would take with different topics that you'd learn about each topic. And then once you have all, all the knowledge you need, then you say yes to Jesus. Like, that's what yeah. I so appreciated about having to start a parish up and really think through what we do. Because RCIA, you know, looks beautiful, I think, in our parish you know, because we take seriously these stages. Right. And it's about a person. So it's not about, okay, here's a list of topics. It's about a person. And this actually is a great segue to my point at last. We're back on the track, <laughs> which is that, you know, Jesus calls his disciples. Matthew is at the tax collector booth. James and John are in the boat. That's the encounter. Then they follow him for three years. And that's that following Christ, that second stage, the catechumenate, listening to the voice. But then they, they are transformed through the events of Holy Week. They have to come face to face with their own brokenness their own weakness, but then they receive Christ's strength and his reconciliation, and they are really changed. And then after the resurrection, there's this fourth stage 
where Jesus stays with his disciples, it says in the scriptures. For 40 days, he stays with them. And it says he opens the scriptures up and he explains to them why everything happened the way it happened. He goes deep into the mystery. And that is what mystagogy is. He's preparing for them to be sent. And then, of course, they go from the ascension to Pentecost, the first ever novena, that nine-day period of prayer as they wait for the Holy Spirit. And then they go out into the world to facilitate more encounters with Christ. So um, in the early church, when they were preparing people for baptism, in like the third century, like St. Augustine, he's preparing people for baptism. They would do these four stages. But for the fourth stage, mystagogy, which always takes place in the Easter season, following the sacraments of the Easter vigil. So they've been baptized. They've received their first Holy Communion. They've been confirmed. That all happened. Now we're in the fourth stage. So it's after the sacraments. For St. Augustine, that's when they would teach the sacraments. So mm. the sacraments up to that point would be shrouded in secrecy. They would not mention what the Eucharist was or what was going to take place in baptism. It was like, shh, let's have you celebrate the sacraments first, and then we'll tell you what just happened. And that was what mystagogy was. And it's very much patterned after the gospel because the disciples, they don't know what the Eucharist is when they're receiving it. They're not understanding what's happening to them and what's going on with, with the passion and death of Christ. It's just like whirling around them and they're being changed, but they don't realize it's in that period afterwards that Jesus fills in the blanks and shows them the real meaning. That's what mystagogy should be for. Not that I... We don't teach the sacraments beforehand, but we really unpack the present. We unpack the gift in the mystagogical period, which is for all of us. It's called post-baptismal mystagogy, right? We're always, every single Christian out there is, that's why we have this podcast. And the liturgy really is what helps us, you know, to unpack these gifts. So yeah. the road trip, within the resurrection narratives of the Gospels, there is one narrative in particular that really sums up not only the four stages, but also is a blueprint of the liturgy itself. And it is a beautiful exposition of the whole Christian experience and Christian life. And it was just the gospel reading in the third Sunday of Easter this year. So this, uh, this road trip takes place in Luke chapter 24. Would you like me to read it? Yeah, let's, let's, why don't you just go ahead and read the whole thing? That very day, the first day of the week, two of Jesus' disciples were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus, and they were conversing about all the things that had occurred. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing as you walk along? They stopped, looking downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, said to him in reply, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know of the things that have taken place there in these days? And he replied to them, What sort of things? They said to him, The things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers both handed him over to a sentence of death and crucified him, but we were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since this took place. Some women from our group, however, have astounded us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came back and reported 
that they indeed seen a vision of angels who announced that he was alive. And some of those with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women had described, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are! How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke! Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what referred to him in all the scriptures. As they approached the village to which they were going, he gave the impression that he was going on farther. But they urged him, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And it happened that while he was with them at table, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. With that, their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke to us on the way and opened the scriptures to us? So they set out at once and returned to Jerusalem, where they found gathered together the eleven and those with them who were saying, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then the two recounted what had taken place on the way and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amazing. 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 Uh, <laughs> so that, that whole narrative is mystagogy. I mean, in a sense, it is the fourth stage. It is Christ coming and opening up the scriptures and they see for the first time and they're being prepared to be sent. So in a sense, this is perfect description of what mystagogy is and how we've defined it even on this podcast. The idea of hearing the voice of Christ who invites us to come deeper, to be not afraid. And so mm-hmm. in that sense, it's true. But in another sense, if you look even closer, you see all four stages outlined here. Okay, go on. So the first stage is encounter. So encountering Christ. They're walking along the road, and Jesus comes and finds them. You know, he encounters them. And he draws near to them and walks with them, and they don't recognize him. Mm-hmm. But you see, and that's that's beautiful because we never take the initiative. It's not our initiative. We have always been encountered by Christ first. He comes to us. And so there's the encounter. And then that leads to um, a following of Christ as he begins to open up the scriptures to them. So he begins to show them the, the way and they begin to mm-hmm. understand. But then it moves into being changed by Christ, receiving him in the sacrament of the Eucharist. They, they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. They realize who he was and what was going on, and they're totally changed, which goes to the fourth, being sent by Christ. They turn around. They go back to the city that they were leaving, and they recount what happened to them. So yep. here is the RCIA process, encounter, follow, um, being changed and being sent, but it's also the story of all of us in our life. Yeah. However, this and this is where my mind really blows, and this is where I want your thoughts. This could also be seen as a blueprint of the Mass. And if that's the case, then the whole Christian life is outlined in the Mass, that the RCIA yeah. process is one huge experience of the Mass in slow motion. And wow, that means mystagogy, 
really takes place within the liturgy itself. So what do you think? Yeah. Do you see the no, mass? I think do you you're the discern the mass here? <laughs> I dropped my microphone. I'm so excited that I dropped my microphone. Pick up your microphone oh, and follow after me. Okay, go ahead. So the road to Emmaus and the mass. I mean, there are definitely parallels that we could walk through. But I want to just point out that four-stage process that the RCA uh, is built upon that all encounters with Christ really do follow. Um, people, I think, could see that too if they've ever had a powerful experience, um, you know, with a retreat uh, that really brought them to Christ, um, fostered that opportunity with any holy friendships that do that. Like, this is the natural process of what it means to encounter Christ and get to the point where we're sent. Um, and so I think that's beautiful. But I think, especially, yeah, the liturgy does open up for us. Um, you know, a beautiful understanding of this whole passage. Uh, so there was a priest, uh, Monsignor Pope, who I think I mentioned before on the podcast when he was talking about what books you should use or if you should pray from your phone and all this. But he had a post back in 2010 kind of breaking this down. But I also think it's really cool, like, you know, our own re reflections on this because, gosh, it is. It is like a blueprint of the Mass. And this isn't anything new. Like, the Church Fathers obviously saw what our Lord was doing here as the liturgy. Right. Um, but when you consider too, like what, how does the liturgy even begin? It begins by us being gathered by God, you know, and that is, is huge in this passage, right? That the, on the, that very day, two of them were going to a, vi a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus, that they're actually like now pilgrims going and they're on mm. the road and it is a road trip. And that's what we are too. When we're gathered for mass, we are pilgrims on this journey. I mean, there's songs about that, but <laughs> Hey, but Hey, keep in mind, they're going the wrong way. They're going the wrong way. They're going the wrong way. And what day is it? Oh, what yeah. day is it? Day is it's it? also Sunday. I Sunday. mean, this is pretty, this is pretty great. And it's the resurrection. It's the Sunday of the resurrection. It's anyway, the keep Sunday. going. It is. They're it, going it, the wrong way. Jesus comes to meet them. Yeah, Jesus comes to meet them when they're going the wrong way. So for us, our pilgrimage at Mass, I mean, in a sense, it's not just when we come to a church building or get gathered, you know, in our or in our pews or our seats. It's our life right now. Whatever direction we're going in, if it's not towards Christ, our Lord wants to encounter us and bring us toward himself. And that's what the Mass is. The liturgy is our Lord reaching out to the world and try to reorder it back to himself. And so the very gathering rites that we have at Mass acknowledge that. The priest walking from the people and representing them before the Heavenly Father and gathering us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, just to put all that perspective of you've been going one way, now we need to go together the right way. Um, is and isn't it interesting that they don't recognize him? Their eyes are prevented him. from seeing him. And this is a huge theme because they are going to recognize him later. But at the no. beginning, their eyes are prevented, it says, prevented from recognizing him. Yeah. How many of us, when we come to Mass, our eyes are prevented from recognizing the Lord? We're going the wrong way. We don't You're see him. Way. But man, thank God for the graces that are available yeah. to us. I mean, how many times more mass are we, are we tempted not to be at mass? Are we tempted to just think it's just the obligation that we don't realize the grand drama of salvation history that we're actually participating in by entering into the liturgy? And instead, we're just like, oh, no, the kids can't find their shoes. You know, I don't know. I stayed out too late the night before. You know, we have all these excuses of why the mass is simply a burden. But that's because our hearts are set on a different direction than Jesus Christ.
That's right. No, you know what's interesting too. So this location of Emmaus is interesting because we only know from the uh, passage in Luke its distance from Jerusalem. And from what I was told when I was over in the Holy Land as a seminarian is there's a couple different places that could have been Emmaus that we don't actually know the exact location of it, which is very interesting, right? That like Emmaus is kind of this understanding of, well, it's away from Jerusalem. Like at this point, they, they are going to eventually be sent away from Jerusalem, but not until they encounter Christ. And so there's a spot that is reverenced as one of the potential spots for Emmaus that um, a French Benedictine monastery is at. But I just wanted to share, like for us, Emmaus is not our destination. Like that's what we have to remember. Jesus is our destination and he is the way. And it's really important to recognize, as the disciples on the road to Emmaus do, that maybe they're going the wrong way. So how about this? They're headed towards a place of comfort, Ooh. but they are going to be called to turn around and go back to the cross. Oh, Back brutal. to the place of the cross. Um, separated by seven miles. Seven miles. Seven Okay, well, we we want. I, I'm sure we go to the church fathers. I'm sure they'd have something to say about seven miles. That's true. But okay. here, so here they are. So, what part of the mass is that? That's where we gather together and the penitential rite. I confess. Yeah, the penitential rite. Now, what's interesting about the penitential rite? It's an admission that I've gone the wrong way in my life. I have sinned, and it's so important that we we recognize that and that we start to recognize that our sin has broken a relationship with God. That's what the penitential right is supposed to do. Not just like, oh, yeah, I messed up. It's like, no, by going the wrong way and going away from my relationship with God in my sins, I, there is brokenness. There is real repair needed. This needs to be addressed. And, you know, in the gospel, when they start reflecting on what has happened in Jerusalem, are you the only one that didn't know what happened in Jerusalem? And they get into that, that whole dialogue. They're relating like all these uh, events of rejection of Jesus. And it's kind of like, you know, by going through that, it it almost is like an examination of conscience, right? Of like, here's all the stuff that's happened and they're bringing it before the Lord, even though they don't know it's him. Totally. I love that, that line too, comedy gold, you know, Jesus is there with them on the road and they're like, are you the only one who didn't know what happened? What these things just happened? And he's like, what sort of things? Yeah. Like, and this is, <laughs> This is this is a revelation of God to us. Yeah. You know, we we will make our complaint and God will say, "What do you mean?" You know, yeah. like he knows what we mean. Yeah. He, he but he wants he wants us to articulate it. He wants us to yeah. Well, and, he reads our heart. And this is where, you know, this is what people get caught up in prayer in general of like, "Well, why do I need to pray if God already knows everything?" Like Jesus is the one that experienced the events of his passion from the inside, not from the outside <laughs> serving, but from the inside. He knows what happened. He's not asking, right. saying, well, what sort of things? Because he needs to be filled in on information. This is right. how he teaches us and forms us to himself is by allowing us to see, okay, at this moment, here's where I'm at, Lord, and here's where I'm focused on. Now, if they were asked that same question by Christ after they get to Emmaus and the meal and everything. They might even explain what happened differently. And they do because they oh, go yeah. back to Jerusalem and they explain things differently. So that's so important for us is to realize like, this isn't a waste of time. Like all of our prayer is not a, 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 an exercise in oh, I'm filling in God in on what he doesn't know. No, you're being filled in on what you think, you know, and 
it, it's a really humiliating process. That's all, that's the whole thing. Yeah. Humiliation. Prayer is a posture of humility. Prayer is is focusing yourself on God, not as the the divine vending machine. No, but, you know, it, like I don't tell Amy I love her, my wife Amy I love her because she doesn't know. Like it's not because she needs to learn that information. Yeah, it's it's because we're in a relationship with each other. Yeah, you know, so it's the same sort of thing. Okay, so we have the penitential rite, and then after the penitential rite, we have the collect where yeah. all the prayers of the people are gathered together. And then we move into the liturgy of the word. That's right. And so where's that here in the story? Well, it's like, this is what's so beautiful and why it's such a clear expression of uh, the pattern of the liturgy in this passage, because, you know, the, the Holy sacrifice of the mass is the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist as the two main, main parts. And right here in the passage, um, they allow our Lord to show them in scripture what's going on. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what referred to him in all the scriptures. It's such an incredible deal that our Lord himself, the author of scripture leads like this first Bible study post-resurrection. Yeah. And all they have are, the law and the prophets, right? I mean, they have the old Testament. And yeah, but, but get, this is this is the gospel yeah, himself it's reading. The gospel the himself. And that's reading. what's so important too, is like when we hear the old testament proclaimed at mass, it's not only through the eyes of those who experienced it at the time, you know, th- that are being described in the old testament. No, we experience them through Christ. We let scripture actually interpret scripture. And because, like you're saying, it's the gospel, Jesus Christ Himself who unfolds everything here. That's wild. The New Testament is hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. But this is another reason why the documents, when it talks to the Liturgy of the Word, says that the the one who reads, it is not their voice, mm. but it is Christ's voice. When we hear the person reading, we must be listening to the words of Christ. Christ is reading the first reading to us. Yeah. And I love, you know, I love his response, you know, to them when he says, you know, oh, how foolish you are. Yeah. Because that's what we, we come to mass. We confess our sins. We recognize that we've gone the wrong way, that we have misinterpreted everything that has happened in our, yeah. in our life, in the salvation history. We've misinterpreted it. We've chosen our own self again. And Jesus says, oh, how foolish you are. I think more out of love than vehemence. He says, yeah. oh, how foolish you are. Let me, let me read it to you again. Yeah. Let me show it to you again. And that's the liturgy of the word. It is, yeah, you know. I, here's okay. Um, I love it because he he does he gets into Moses and the prophets, but you know that that experience of oh how foolish you are. I mean, that's that's the potential a good homily could do, like could have the potential effect is like to just allow people to reconsider the gospel um, wherever they're at and 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 allow it to change them again, to reconsider their own judgment and their sinfulness and the brokenness and how they've been going the wrong way. And that our Lord has had this plan of salvation in place from the beginning to bring us back to himself. And yet we keep fighting it and we don't see how our Lord is uh, calling us to himself through all the scriptures. So yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. And we're foolish. We're all so foolish. We have the wisdom of the world is foolishness. And the foolishness of God is wiser than anything in, in the human world. The cross was folly. 
in the eyes of human wisdom. So we are so foolish um, and we need to, that is revealed to us when we hear the scripture. We're like, wow. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. what I, okay. So after the liturgy of the word, there's this hinge between the liturgy of the word and liturgy of the Eucharist, which is of course, you know, the homilies are part of that, but then the creed mm -hmm. and the intercessions. And I think that, oh, looking at this right now in oh, just yeah. this moment, I see the creed and the intercessions sort of entwined in this one statement where it says, where they say, stay with us. Stay with us. For it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. Um, how do you see that as being those two? And well, yeah, I mean, it's obviously, what I think. it's obviously a petition to God himself right there in front of them to stay with them, right? Um, for the evening is nearly upon us. Like there is this sense of like urgency. And I think we, we forget that like, cause, cause in the ritual of the mass, when we pray the petitions, the, the, um, prayers of the faithful, we forget these are urgent pleas. Like we don't have all of time. Time has an expiration. Um, it's going to end. And right now, as long as we have the day, we need to call on the Lord. So mm -hmm. I love that. But how are you seeing the creed? Well, because the creed is a renewal of of baptismal yeah. vows. It's not a statement of here's all the things that we intellectually assent to, mm -hmm. but it's here's all the things I pledge myself to. Mm -hmm. They're like wedding vows. Yeah. They're very relational. I believe in oh, God, wow. not I believe that there is a God. I believe in Jesus Christ our Lord. I believe yeah. in the church. So um here when it's stay with us, there's this longing for a relationship. They don't they still don't recognize him but they want him to stay with them and they're pledging themselves to him. They're saying, stay yeah. with us, come and be in our home, be with us. And I feel like when we make the, our renewal of baptismal vows in the creed, we are saying that we're saying, God come dwell in our hearts, dwell in our homes, dwell in our communities. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, like be with us. I love it. And I think too, that distinction between it's day, but, but night is coming. If you think about that in terms of day as uh, life and night as our death, is that that pledge in our baptism of our promises is not just so I benefit now from being in relationship with Christ, but this defines me in my death. Like mm -hmm. through my death, I'll remain with Christ too. And that's really powerful. So that moves us into then, you know, in many ways, the climax mm -hmm. of the mass which is Liturgy of the Eucharist, um, which um, many of us listening even now uh, have been fasting from for a long time, mm -hmm. <laughs> longing to receive. Um, but it's a little bit more obvious. This is the most obvious, I think, in the in this narrative. Yeah, it is, because it uses the, the formula um, that we would call like a Eucharistic formula that when they go to table, that he takes bread blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. So that's like a Eucharistic mm. formula when you see that in the scriptures. Um, then when you take, bless, break, and give. Um, and not only like would that tell you, okay, what's going on, but then the reaction tells you what's going on. And it's so powerful. But here's what's wild. You know, it was only a few days before that right. he had that meal with his apostles. And he did the same thing. And now we get him with these disciples and he does it again. And that's what we always have to keep in mind. Like 
it, it is it is such an astounding mystery that our Lord keeps Himself accessible to us in the Mass, and that like we need we should we should keep celebrating it every day. And I think that longing that everybody's experienced right now to be gathered together again at Mass um, is this longing that you know even though we've been to Mass before in our lives. That's where we still want to come back to. And I just love that God keeps breaking in time with something that's timeless, his sacrifice. But yet we get to keep experiencing it in time. Like it could have been enough for just the and, last supper, the only, the only time he did that. But we need it. He doesn't need it. We need it. Because our hearts are still slow to believe. I love that phrase too, right? We didn't touch on it, but I love it. That their hearts were slow to believe what the prophet said, right? Like usually we think of belief as simply an intellectual exercise. And I know there's a, there's an anthropology going on here scripturally that um, the heart is the place, right. Of the intellect. Is that right? Of the will. No, of the will. Of the this will. makes it even better. It does make it better. Ah! So because that's, it's, it's their will was slow to yeah. follow, you know, but. And that's where love yeah. exists. Love exists in the will. It's an act of the will. It's not this act of, uh, it's not a feeling. It's an actual exercise of the will to uh to lay down to to love and so our when our hearts are slow um to act oh my goodness i i just i get all wound up hearing that you know in the ancient times you know what the seat of the emotions was who we think of seat of emotions is the heart now yeah you know the head is the intellect the heart is the emotions but in the ancient times the heart was the will the emotions was the bowels yeah so there That's you go That's pretty amazing now, there's a tradition that um, we know one of the names of these guys is Cleopas, uh-huh. but there's a tradition that the other one, the unnamed one, was Luke himself. Oh, really? But And he purposely didn't use his name like John didn't use his name for the beloved disciple oh, so that we would be in his shoes, mm-hmm. you know, that we are one of the, the guys walking. That's um, but that- yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to go back to the meal. Oh, yeah, go back. Let's do it. Please. So at the meal, you have the Eucharistic formula of taking, blessing, breaking, giving. And with that, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Finally. Finally. But he vanished from their sight. Now, there's two different ways you could look at that. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it seems kind of uh, tragic at mm-hmm. first and sort of mean-spirited. They finally recognize him. And he disappears like no embrace. Uh huh. No, like it's me guys. Yeah, we did it. Um, he just vanishes. So that's one reading that I've often heard sort of like, wow, why did he vanish? It's kind of like, it's, it seems so strange and cold. But the second reading is that he vanishes because now he's present with them in the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, what do you think? What's your take on that? Well, yeah, this is a hard one. It's a hard one, especially if you don't believe in transubstantiation. Oh gosh. Yeah. Like why would he disappear at this moment when he just prepared their hearts for himself? Right. When he'd spent all this time with them, if it's just regular bread, now they're just left to eat it by themselves. Just regular bread. I mean, partially I think uh, what's going on here is by celebrating the Eucharist with them, by taking blessing, breaking, giving, he's given them the model of how another can also recognize him. So he doesn't need to remain with them in the way he was before on the road. Now he's given them something 
else, another way to recognize him, right? And so now they're on to show others, how do you recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread, right? In the and, and in them. And in them. Yeah. In them. And in them. And this is where, okay, so this is what's awesome. So when I was in this monastery um, at one location that's seven miles from Jerusalem that might be Emmaus, and we had uh, had a little lemoncello from the Benedictine monks, and we were uh, sitting in the church, and then I gave a little reflection to the guys. Um, I stole from N.T. Wright, who compared this moment of their eyes being opened and recognizing Jesus to the moment of Adam and Eve's eyes being opened because of sin. Oh, wow. And how now that fall that opened our eyes now to sin is now being countered by Jesus Christ himself through the culmination of salvation history, now opening our eyes to this new life in Christ, a new way to see because of the Eucharist. Like that fruit of two different trees, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit of the tree of life, both open our eyes. Oh, I love it. Okay. So, and here's another interesting thing, because now we're moving in the fourth stage, moving in the final, um, the concluding rites of the liturgy, mm-hmm. um, because Jesus does not actually command them to go do anything. No. Like they, they recognize him, but there's like this compulsion yeah. to now go and share what has taken place. Yeah. And in the concluding rites, we have what gives the mass its name. Mass does not mean sacrifice. Nope. Mass does not mean homily Mm-mm. or Eucharist. Mass literally means to be sent. It means to be dismissed. It's where we get the word mission. Um, and so here they they are implicitly sent. Then they return to the place they were leaving. They go yeah. back to Jerusalem. I love that. I love that they recognize the burning of their hearts. Like this is for me, if we're, if we're going kind of like the timeline of the mass uh, of the liturgy, um, this is the time where you either recognize when you, before you receive Holy Communion or while you receive Holy Communion or right after mm. Holy Communion, what our Lord is doing in you. Like that desire for him that union with him, like that fire of your heart. And that for me is why the sacred heart of Jesus, that image of our Lord's heart is so powerful because it's on fire. It's wrapped in a crown of thorns, it's wounded and it's on fire. And that's what he wants to do to us. The fire of his divine love transforms our hearts with his divine love. And now we get to go share it, but you're absolutely right. He doesn't tell them to go. They just go like, this is what you do. When you've received God's love, you share it. You know why they went? It's because the heart, the seat of the will, mm. was on fire. Ugh. And there's no longer slow. No, no. longer slow. It was not a smoldering pile of ash. It was on fire, ready to refine, ready to, to do some work. Um, and look at the last. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I love, too, that they, they pinpoint, too, while he spoke to us on the way and opened the scriptures to us. It's like... The Eucharist, that encounter with our Lord in the Eucharist too, like opens up, why do we even have this encounter with the Lord in scripture? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's why, like, I love people who have been formed well to love sacred scripture um, in a non-Catholic tradition who then have their eyes open to our Lord in the Eucharist and become Catholic. And now like the scripture even comes even more alive. Like that encounter with Christ in the scripture is even taken to another level because of the, or they, or they become more cognizant. They realize how alive the scripture really is. Yeah. You it's, know, yeah. 
this is a trick. We here open the scriptures and we think, because we're in our 21st century minds, we think, get a book and open the scriptures, you know, eh, open it up. We don't understand that the scriptures, because of our sin and our foolishness, are closed to us. Yes. Now, when we come to the mass, the opening of the scriptures is not just opening up the lectionary. It is even the way the readings are arranged. First reading, Psalm, second reading. And the gospel, they are arranged to open the scriptures for us yes. so that we see, we truly see. Um, and if this huge narrative of the road trip to Emmaus that was, you know, brought to a, a premature halt and then they turned around and it ends up being a road trip back to Jerusalem. But if this is too long, just look at the last two lines. Yeah. Because that also is a summary of the whole mass. So. Then the two recounted what had taken place on the way and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Yeah. The liturgy of the word is about talking about what has taken place on the way. Yeah. On the way to where we're going. Here's the story. Here's where we are. And then how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So yeah. there's, I mean, the early Christian church, it wasn't called Christianity. Christians weren't called Christians yet. They were called followers of the way. They were on the way. That's the earliest um, reference to what this this faith was called by people, was the way. Yeah, and I love, too, how it's not just simply them telling about an experience that they had only. They do that as they're hearing the other experiences, like that the Lord has been raised and appeared to Simon. But in, make, in explaining that he was making known, made known to them in the breaking of the bread— that's something they actually can do together now. Like they can actually have the mass. Like yeah. it's not just like, Oh, you hear about the cool thing that happened to me. Right. Like that's kind of what we get into sometimes with like social media. It becomes like this weird, like kind of competition of experiences and life and just seeking the next high and all this. But what about if we actually could share the most life changing experience ever together still. And it wasn't just something in the past that happened but that we actually have access to it now. This was the moment. This was the moment that they realized what happened at the last supper. Yes. This was the moment. They had no idea what the Eucharist was until these two guys come back and say, he was made known to us in the breaking of the bread. And then it was probably like light bulbs going off. That's how I'm imagining. They're going, and then of course that night, maybe minutes following these guys coming back through the locked doors comes Jesus himself to breathe on them, the Holy spirit. So, I mean, what a day. I mean, we said that we stop at the tomb, but like sketch out the whole day somewhere in there. Okay. He appears to Mary Magdalene. He definitely appeared to his mother at some point. And then here we have it recorded in Luke that he appeared to Simon, to Peter before he appeared to his disciples. We have no record of that conversation, by the way, that initial conversation after those denials, man, you know, I I guess it's too private for us. Well, that's a little side note too, but even, okay. So he appears to Simon and yet then while they're out fishing, like, that's what I love. <laughs> like Simon takes so long to get it because they go out fishing and it's like, John still has to point out to Simon Peter, uh, that's Jesus <laughs> like on the beach. Right. <laughs> because Peter, I just love it. I just love it. I'm so much like that. Oh, 
Oh, you know what I think it was? I think he appears to. Okay, now I'm in total speculation land. Okay, totally disregard. But P- Peter is my patron saint. Mm-hmm. He's my confirmation saint. So I, I love Peter very, very much because, you know, a, a chain is only strong as its weakest link. G.K. Chesterton said, and so Jesus chose the weakest possible man to be the the, the rock. So, um, what if Jesus appears to Peter? And Peter just gets a glimpse of him and falls down and weeps. Yeah. What if there was were no words exchanged? Mm-hmm. It was just full on just this sort of repentance and this this like, you know. And then it was later that Peter actually, you know, looks at Jesus and they actually have a conversation. Like that first time he couldn't do it. I mean, the profound sorrow at his own failure. I mean that's how I would imagine that it would be if I was Peter. So that's yeah. my speculation. Um, I mean, this so yeah. So, I mean, in, this is beautiful. This is why um, this is read on the third Sunday of Easter mm-hmm. because we are reflecting upon the resurrection still, you know, we're still living in that resurrection moment and especially at the mass, we are on the road to Emmaus. Like we are on the road and Christ comes and encounters us and we recognize him and we leave by a different way. Yeah. We change directions when we leave mass, you know, or we should, that's what conversion is. Repentance is. So Mm. anyway, beautiful. So good. Easter. um, Easter. So, you know, we've been reflecting so long on, on Lent and suffering and the cross. It feels great to just reflect a little bit on the resurrection, the new morning, the dawn. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really powerful. And I think especially at this time, you know, as this podcast is being recorded, um, access by the faithful to the liturgy, to the mass uh, specifically um, is restricted because of the pandemic. But maybe we can recognize that our hearts can still be burning within us. Like we can still have scripture unfolded, opened up to us. And, and maybe when we next <laughs> receive our Lord or before him in the Eucharist, you know, we're going to be changed too, because there've been so many people have been commenting about how we're not going to take mass for granted anymore. We're not going to take the opportunity to receive our Lord and prepare well to receive him for granted. And I love that, but that's the experience that the disciples had with our Lord after they were on the road to Emmaus and their hearts mm. were burning. Our hearts need to burn. Yeah. Let's plug scripture a little bit more. You know, St. Jerome said ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. Yeah. And I challenge you to find an instance of receiving the Eucharist that is not preceded by scripture. Yeah. I mean, scripture leads us to the Eucharist. Yes. Even, you know, when I would have the pleasure, the honor of bringing communion to the sick and hospitals back in the, mm-hmm. before times, you know, there was always a small reading of scripture before they received. And it's because the scripture, you know, is where we encounter Christ mm-hmm. and he leads us to his real presence. I mean, they go together. So as we wait, if we are still in that period of waiting, as we wait for the Eucharist and we, you know, even between Sundays, as we wait, if we're not going to daily mass, we should be reflecting on the scriptures, mm-hmm. opening, having the scriptures opened up to us by the church so that we are preparing our hearts to be set ablaze Yeah, with the Eucharist. Oh, man. Amen. You know, often Catholics get accused, you know, of, you know from our Protestant brothers and sisters of, of disregarding scripture 
or holding it in some sort of like low esteem because, you know, in the Protestant tradition, we have, um, when I was a Protestant, we had something called sola scriptura, the scripture alone. Scripture alone is all we need for our salvation, which of course that concept is not found in scripture. So that's a problem. But like when I became Catholic, I discovered something incredible, which is that everything, everything is marinated, soaked, dripping with scripture. I mean, you go to mass and the whole thing from beginning to end is like word for word scripture. We're hearing from the Old Testament. We're hearing from the New Testament. We're hearing from the gospel. In three years, you hear like 70% of the whole Bible read to you. And that's just on Sundays. You know, there's so much scripture, um, a treasury of scripture within the Catholic church. And that's because the scripture Mm -hmm. came from the Catholic church. You know, it was birthed in the womb of the Catholic church. It is our book. You know, it's it's inspired word of God. The same Holy Spirit that inspired the scripture is the Holy Spirit that has given the church infallible authority to, you know, guide it into all truth. So um, in this time without the Eucharist, we must not underestimate the power of scripture in our lives. Like if, if we're Catholics, you know, maybe we got used to just hearing scripture at mass. But we should take that Bible off of our shelves. We should open it up and be refreshed by the word, by the word who was made flesh, but who's there in the pages of scripture, the revelation of who God is. Inspired word of God. God breathed. This is scripture is word with a mission. It wants to change us. So um, if you are not reading the Bible, pick it up. Read it, and I, you know, and I encourage you to like spend time in the Gospels, specifically the Gospel of Matthew, because that's the cycle we're in. The point is, get the Bible off your shelf and start to read it, and read it prayerfully as you open it up. Ask the Holy Spirit to soften your heart and to show you something. Don't read it for speed. Don't read it for like trying to get through it. Read it to encounter our Lord. There, soapbox, soapbox over. Hey. Catholics love Scripture. Amen. 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 All right. Well, thanks for listening to Mysticat. Your catechesis, mystagogically flavored. And uh, hope uh, you enjoyed it. And please, please share us with your friends, relatives, your neighbors, your loved ones. All right. Mysticat. Meow. Bye.